listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. AFL remained an obstacle. Most of its leaders split between those who preferred to ignore mass production workers entirely and those who were willing to take in new dues-paying members as long as their own prerogatives and power remained intact. Both groups doubted mass production workers could really be organized. AFL leaders had beaten back many rank-and-file insurgencies, but this time around, when union leaders were not of one mind, John L. Lewis, president of the United Mine Workers, the nation's largest union, sided with the insurgents and was ready to lead an assault on the old guard at the AFL convention. When delegates gathered in Atlantic City in October 1935, the stage was set for a fight that would split the Federation. Rubber workers in Akron, Ohio, first put the CIO on the map. In the middle of February 1936, several hundred members of the United Rubber Workers, URW, threw up a picket line at the giant Goodyear tire plant after layoffs were announced. Within days, more than 14,000 Goodyear workers were out on strike. Their tactics were typical of new labor. Thousands of pickets, rubber workers from Goodyear and other companies, along with their families and neighbors, encircled the plant's 11-mile perimeter day and night, even in blizzards. When Goodyear got an injunction, the URW and Akron's Central Labor Council promised a general strike if the National Guard enforced the injunction. Guardsmen did not intervene. When police tried to tear down tents set up along the picket line, General Tire Company workers left their shop to help beat back the police. When the rubber barons organized a vigilante law and order league, the union organized a counterforce of workers who had served in the Great War. The strike was not just a local effort. CIO headquarters donated to the strike fund and sent staff to help the strikers. CIO researchers provided facts about Goodyear's profits and stock manipulations for publicity. CIO leaders let Goodyear and its customers know that they risked national boycott if violence broke out on the picket line. After a month, the company offered to shelve the layoff plan and bargain with the union. The strikers debated the offer at mass meetings and agreed to go back to work. Rank-and-file activists carried grassroots mobilization to new levels. CIO headquarters dedicated a large staff to organizing the unorganized. The difference showed in CIO political action. President Roosevelt ran for re-election in 1936, 
John L. Lewis knew his defeat would be disastrous for labor and vigorously campaigned for him. In return, Roosevelt promised to support a CIO drive in steel. Roosevelt won millions of working-class votes because of the Second New Deal and its contrast with the relentlessly pro-business platform of his Republican opponent. The president got over 60% of the popular vote, carrying every state but Maine and Vermont. Urban working-class voters, migrants from rural America as well as immigrants, came to identify themselves as Democrats. African-American support for the Republican Party, steadfast since the Civil War, evaporated as federal programs brought relief communities and black votes went to Roosevelt, even though he failed to endorse a federal anti-lynching law opposed by Southern Democrats. In November and early December, when workers struck in GM plants in Atlanta and Kansas City, UAW leaders had discouraged the actions as premature. Then a department at the Cleveland plant set down on December 20th, and the rest of the 7,000 workers soon joined in, vowing to stay until GM signed a national contract. On December 31st, workers occupied Detroit's GM Fisher Plant No. 2. The next day, workers from Fisher No. 1 in Flint, Michigan, met on lunch break. Several hundred returned to the plant, escorted guards and managers out, and settled in to stay. On January 3, 1937, with sit-downs rapidly spreading, UAW delegates met in Flint, composed formal demands, and declared a company-wide strike. The Flint occupation was well-disciplined. The shop committee patrolled to make sure no one damaged cars or equipment. Drinking and gambling were forbidden. Janora Johnson, wife of local union leader Kermit Johnson and a member of the Socialist Party, organized a women's emergency brigade which wore red berets and carried hammers, crowbars, and two-by-fours to demonstrations and pickets. The strike got outside support. Even First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt contributed to the strike fund. By mid-January, 17 plants and well over half the GM workforce were on strike. The company refused to negotiate unless the plants were vacated. Stalemated, the union made plans to take Chevrolet plant number 9. Spies reported the plan. GM security shifted in anticipation. As union members and women's emergency brigade stormed Chevy Number no. 9, other union militants walked into Chevrolet Number no. 4, which made all the engines for the Chevrolet line. Half the 4,000 workers joined them, and the rest left. The company recognized the UAW at the striking plants, dropped charges and losses against the strikers, and agreed to submit other demands to a labor management conference on February 10th. The victory snowballed. Chrysler Corporation signed with the union in April, and by the end of the year, UAW had recruited 400,000 members, established a general union local 156 in Flint, and taken over the city's government. The sit-down tactic was widely copied. In the first two weeks after the Flint victory, there were 87 sit-down strikes in Detroit alone. In auto parts, plants, cigar factories, bakeries, and other workplaces. UAW locals were virtually autonomous. 
All officers were elected by the membership, and the Radical Unity Caucus fought with the Moderate Progressive Caucus for a decade. However, effective on the shop floor, these wildcat strides called without union authorization undercut UAW's negotiations with Goodyear. To gain concessions from management, union officials had to be able to deliver labor peace. Union after union clamped down on Wildcat once employers agreed to negotiate. But employers broke the law more efficiently than the government enforced it. Even after the Supreme Court upheld the Wagner Act in April 1937, the NLRB was so swamped by complaints about employer violations that unions could not get rulings for months or years if the dispute went to the courts. Reliance on the NLRB also turned the CIO away from workers not protected by Wagner. Local and regional unions of sharecroppers, farmhands, fishermen, and food processors started the United Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America, UCAPAWA, in July 1937, bringing together 110,000 members, unprotected field workers, and protected plant workers alike. But UCAPAWA's central office supported farm organizing less and less, suspending it entirely in 1939. Domestic workers fared worse. The CIO did not even try to organize them. Still, the CIO advanced working class solidarity in important ways. CIO unions welcomed men and women of every color, creed, and nationality. This solidarity had limits. Women workers did not hold leadership positions in proportion to their numbers in CIO unions. The same was true for men of color. CIO contracts left hiring decisions to employers and seniority clauses perpetuated the effects of discrimination. Nevertheless, women's rank in U.S. unions expanded from about 200,000 in 1935 to 800,000 in 1940. The CIO and its National Coordinating Committee of CIO Auxiliaries created a large and vital network of local and national women's auxiliaries. In the UAW and other unions, including the Rubber Workers, SWAC, Mine Mill, and the National Maritime Union, the auxiliaries were active in many strikes. CIO unions adopted constitutions outlawing exclusion, discrimination, and segregation. Their members took a CIO pledge promising never to discriminate against fellow worker on account of creed, color, or nationality. They fielded organizers from diverse backgrounds and published union literature in many languages. They reached out to working class churches and community organizations. They worked with civil rights and civic groups like A. Philip Randolph's National Negro Congress the Southern Negro Youth Congress, the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign-Born, the Committee for the Protection of Filipino Rights, and the Japanese American Democratic Clubs in several California cities. CIO unions also cultivated connections with the radical ethnic associations affiliated with the International Workers' Order, like the Slavic Workers' Society, the Garibaldi American Fraternity Society, and the Cervantes Fraternal Society. CIO rank-and-file united across racial 
and ethnic lines. When 200 black women from the tobacco stimmers and laborers industrial union struck the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company in Richmond, Virginia, the same number of white women from amalgamated clothing workers joined the picket line. The Maritime Workers Industrial Union signed up 3,000 Chinese sailors after agreeing to support their demands for equal pay and the right to go ashore in U.S. ports. This culture of solidarity owed a great deal to left-wing radicals, especially communists, though John L. Lewis had ruthlessly attacked Reds in the past, he hired many as CIO organizers, recognizing their militancy, discipline, and success at building interracial cooperation in the TUUL. When colleagues objected, Lewis responded, Who gets the bird, the hunter or the dog? Communists and their allies were elected to lead many locals and some national unions, and solidarity made the greatest advances in these settings. Corporations had their own brand of solidarity. The little steel companies, Republic, Youngston Sheet and Tube, Inland, and Bethlehem planned in concert to block the Union and handed the CIO its first major defeat. Once U.S. Steel had recognized the Union, SWAC turned to the industry's second tier and called a strike against Little Steel in May 1937. Republic Steel's Chief Executive Officer, Tom Girdler, organized the joint resistance along the lines of 1919. Strikers were gassed, clubbed, and shot. Thousands of workers were jailed following confrontations with police or National Guardsmen. In South Chicago on Memorial Day, police attacked a gathering of Republic strikers and their families, beating and shooting more than 50 men, women, and children. Ten men died, one clubbed to death. Eight more workers were killed before the strike ended in defeat. Little still strike violence was neither spontaneous nor accidental. The company spent nearly $500,000 on weapons for strike use. Youngston Sheet and Tube bought eight machine guns, 369 rifles, 190 shotguns, 450 revolvers, 190 gas launchers, plus 10,000 rounds of ammunition, and 3,000 tear gas canisters. Republic still bought more military supplies than any state or local police department in the country. So found the Senate Committee on Civil Liberties, chaired by Wisconsin's Robert LaFollette Jr., which began hearings in 1936. La Committee investigated corporate efforts to sabotage union organizing and documented the Mohawk Valley formula, a strike strategy promoted by the National Association of Manufacturers that combined violence with elaborate propaganda campaigns. A faltering economy compounded the CIO's trials. In 1937, following a year of recovery, Roosevelt cut government spending to balance the federal budget with disastrous results. Recovery halted in mid-1937. By 1938, the Depression was back in full force. Mexican-Americans pecan shellers in San Antonio won a bitter strike in early 1938, only to find themselves replaced by machines a few months later. Several thousand shellers lost their jobs, though many CIO unions held steady and some even grew. At the end of 1939, 
the CIO claimed 200,000 fewer members than two years earlier. AFL competition also helped shrink the CIO. The Federation suspended CIO unions in 1936 and expelled them in 1937. In May 1938, the Committee for Industrial Organization became the Congress of Industrial Organizations, an independent and momentarily larger rival federation. The AFL started organizing. Conservative union leaders hired radicals to get things rolling. Teamster President Tobin hired communist Minneapolis who organized 200,000 long-haul truckers in 11 states. Craft unions developed industrial divisions. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers started organizing production workers in electrical equipment factories. Cautious unions grew bold. The hotel employees and restaurant employees, H-E-R-E, used a sit-down strike to win recognition and a contract with increased wages and paid vacations for lunch counter waitresses and sales clerks at Woolworth, Five and Dime, doors in Detroit. The workers even got a half pay for the time they had been on strike. Some unions organizing among multiracial workforces dropped color bars. The AFL gave a charter to Field Workers Union Local 30326 in California, which had Filipino and Mexican-American members. The AFL Alaska Packers Union first, second, and third vice presidents were Japanese, Chinese, and Mexican-American in 1937. Roosevelt himself blamed the downturn on a strike of capital, and John L. Lewis agreed. Both charged that businessmen had cut back investments to induce a depression they hoped would undo the Wagner Act and the rest of the New Deal. The renewed depression put Roosevelt and his political allies on the defensive. Only one major reform made it through Congress after the economy dumped. The Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA of June 1938. The act put a floor on wages and a ceiling on hours, 25 cents an hour and 44 hours per week, with time and a half for overtime, and provided for improvements to 40 cents an hour and 40 hours per week two years later. It also outlawed the employment of children under 16 in most occupations, under 18 in hazardous occupations, as enacted, that FLSA was weaker than the president had proposed, congressional amendments limited its coverage to workers engaged in interstate distribution or production and exempted many groups, including farm workers and agricultural processors, fishermen, domestic workers, and professionals. In the general election, Democrats retained the majority in both the House and Senate, but New Dealers did not. Southern Dixiecrats joined Republicans to bring the New Deal to an end. Ultra-right sentiment surged among businessmen in 1938 through 40, especially sympathy for the fascist experiments in Germany and Italy. Henry Ford and international business machines president Thomas J. Watson accepted Nazi medals. A former president of the National Association of Manufacturers declared, American business might be forced to turn to some form of disguised fascist dictatorship. 
1940, Midwestern businessmen from Sears Roebuck, Quaker Oats, Hormel, and other companies helped form the American First Committee to oppose intervention against Hitler. The CIO drew fire from every part of the conservative spectrum. A Ku Klux Klan newspaper warned, CIO wants whites and blacks on the same level. The National Association of Manufacturers distributed 2 million copies of the pamphlet, joined the CIO and helped build a Soviet America. Father Charles Coughlin, the radio priest, blended praise for the AFL with attacks on the CIO, communists and the international Jewish conspiracy in weekly broadcasts carried nationwide. The labor advocate newspaper of the AFL Central Labor Council in Birmingham, Alabama attacked America's enemy number one, the CIO under its communist leaders. In May 1938, the U.S. House of Representatives established the Committee to Investigate Un-American Activities, chaired by Texas Democrat Martin Dyes, who called a steady parade of conservative expert witnesses. In August 1938, the AFL's John Frey named 284 CIO organizers as communists waiting for the signal for revolution. Immigrants were especially suspect. In 1939, the House of Representatives passed the Alien Registration Act, commonly called the Smith Act. It required that all aliens, non-citizens, citizen immigrants, be fingerprinted, register with the U.S. Justice Department, and keep the government informed of their whereabouts. Radical ambitions went hand-in-hand with a militant patriotism. Strikers celebrated victories by singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Portraits of Abraham Lincoln adorned the pages of Union newspapers and Union office walls. Labor activists were routinely compared to the Patriots of 1776 and abolitionists like John Brown, Frederick Douglass, and Sojourner Truth. The Communist Party called on all opponents of fascism and war to defend the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of the American people and the sacred guarantee of our Bill of Rights. CIO-style patriotism included an active recognition of injustice and strong sense of obligation to correct it. Commitment to democracy also fostered international solidarity. The National Maritime Union honored picket lines in foreign ports during a 1938 strike by Puerto Rican dock workers, for example. East Harlem Congressman Vito Marcantonio of the American Labor Party defended Puerto Rican nationalists prosecuted by the colonial government. New York City's Transport Workers Union had ties to the Irish Republican Army. CIO communists promoted American Soviet friendship. The gravest international issue was the spread of fascism. Under the increasing influence of Militarists, the imperial Japanese government imposed direct military rule on its Korean colony in 1931. The Japanese army occupied Manchuria the same year and embarked on the conquest of China in 1937. Fascist Italy invaded Ethiopia in 1935. 
Albania in 1939. Nazis came to power in Germany in 1933, annexed Austria in 1938, Czechoslovakia the next spring, then invaded Poland in September 1939, provoking war with Britain and France. By the end of 1940, German troops occupied most of Western Europe and Italy and Japan had joined Germany in an alliance of mutual defense against any attack. The CIO opposed fascism and aggression. Its union joined churches, women's associations, and civil rights groups in the American League Against War and Fascism, which lobbied against trade with fascist nations. The CIO worked with Chinese American groups and the National Negro Congress to boycott Japanese goods. Communists spearheaded a hands-off Ethiopia campaign. Spain got the most attention. In 1936, the fascist general Francisco Franco rebelled against the Republican government with German and Italian aid. Labor activists were among 2,800 Americans who went to Spain to fight fascism, most as members of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The North American Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy supplied the Republicans with hundreds of tons of food, clothes, and medical supplies. General Motors and Texaco sent trucks and fuel to the fascists. The CIO denounced the U.S. embargo on arms shipments to Spain and opposed Roosevelt's recognition of the Franco regime in 1939. The CIO also opposed domestic fascism its 1938 convention condemned the poll taxes to deny African-American voting rights. CIO officers and member unions joined with the American Committee to protect the foreign-born to urge repeal of the Smith Act. By 1940, the Depression was ending. The recovery based on government spending on military procurement, Roosevelt promised to keep the U.S. out of the war, but his administration supported both an expansion of the U.S. arsenal and equipping Britain. Congress appropriated $16 million for airplanes, warships, and other munitions. The CIO picked up momentum, growing to $4 million by the end of the year. Rosa was elected to a third term in 1940, but by a narrow margin, beating Republican Wendell Wilkie by 5 million votes. John L. Lewis broke with other CIO leaders to oppose Roosevelt's nomination and endorse Bookie in the election. If the president was re-elected, he declared he would know the CIO's rank and file backed Roosevelt, take it as a vote of no confidence in his leadership, and resign. He kept his word. Spock's Philip Murray took his place. The New Deal finished. Lewis gone. The nation beginning to prosper but moving toward a new world war. The labor movement headed into a new and uncertain era. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. 
Thank you for listening.